Hi, before we get started, just a quick heads up. The Canadian Advisor Tech Expo is going to be taking place on November 14th to 17th between 12 and 5 p.m. Eastern Time virtually online. It is the premier conference for advisors to learn more about technologies available to them and about transforming their digital practice. Please note that the previous ad before my podcast had the incorrect date. This is a correction. Hope to see you there. And now on to today's show. Hello and welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I brought my semi-frequent guest host, Guy Anderson, to interview me for the 250th episode, believe it or not, of Fintech Impact. And basically brought him on because this was a good opportunity, as many as a few of you have asked me in the past, to talk about basically what I've learned and where I think we're going from at this point on. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Guy. Guy, thanks for taking the time. Always happy to do it, Jason. So yes, Guy, thanks for uh, helping me, quote unquote, celebrate. 250th episode of this. I'm actually, I don't even want to look up what year I started this in now, but it's uh, it's it's crept up pretty quick. Yeah, it's like four and a half years. So 2018, I think, think we you first started this and the first one went up four times. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So you, you took the you took the opportunity away from me. I wanted to congratulate you because enduring, first of all, even starting a podcast, but enduring for 250 episodes, you must have uh must have learned a lot over that time. One would hope. One <laughs> <laughs> would hope by now that uh, by osmosis alone, I would take in a bunch. So tell me then, like, what have you learned? What's the biggest takeaway, say, from episode one to now, where you are now? What's the biggest takeaway that you've learned over 250 episodes? How to sound more natural in a podcast. Look, that I think I... I entered into this with a lot more wide-eyed optimism than I did for how fast and how long and how how fast some of these solutions were going to come and how much further along we would be. And what I've discovered is, you know, we move at a certain pace in technology and we move at a certain pace because, hey, it is it takes a while. It takes a while. And some of these problems are pretty big. So it's not surprising that we're not, um, you know, looking back now, I think of myself as a little bit more naive back then. But I think, you know, change happens slowly and then all at once, right? I'm sure if I went back and pulled myself from four and a half years to today, that Jason would basically say, wow, you've got so many more cool toys, but why are none of them speaking to each other the way they're supposed to be, right? Like, so it would be impressed, but at the same time, not fully thinking, you know, that fundamental issue is still not there. Right. So so the, the way that the fintechs talk to each other, interact, just isn't there and things haven't progressed as fast as you thought they would? Well, in integrations, I would say I'll, I'll differ for different markets, right? So, for example, there's a lot of integrations in the U.S. market, but I would I would actually refer to a lot of those a lot of those integrations as borderline superficial. They are they're not very deep. There's not a lot of deep exchange of data. It's it's you know you're getting some of the information you need, but maybe not in the most optimal form and not in the most actionable form, or you're getting limited amounts of it. So it's not quite as being able to do everything you would want to do necessarily. In Canada, we barely even started. Like it's it's still to this day. You know, our architecture was more dated than, well, as dated as the U.S., the difference is, is that they started on a journey of fixing it all probably 20 years before we did. So they're well ahead of us. But in Canada, I mean, very, very few systems talk to each other. And short of having shops to program to work with APIs and do it yourself, it's probably still a little well off. So what are some of the trends that you're seeing now then? Big trends that I'm seeing now, I mean, I think it, there's a couple of ways to look at this, right? So again, I'll contrast the U.S. market versus elsewhere. The U.S. market, everybody's got baseline technology, right? Like, hey, I've got a digital solution for just about everything I need. However, some of the big, okay, the bigger two, the bigger two issues here are A, some of the bigger, more challenging issues still haven't been solved. There's a lack of surprisingly digital onboarding systems that exists in any country. So if I wanted to, as a vendor, a broker dealer, an RIA, whatever it was, off the shelf, buy something that would work just by putting my credit card and I can just start sending, start, you know, basically 
opening up accounts or whatever custodian I wanted to, that's not a thing, right? Like it's slowly becoming a thing right now. And there's a lot of complexity to that because there's a lot of complexity to data and I get that. But, you know, it's one of those things where I look at it and say, oh, come on, like solve this problem we're actually having. The other issue I would say too, is that in the US, they've kind of gone a little too far and now they're kind of pulling back a bit. What I mean by that is that everybody's got base level technology. Okay, great, cool, base level technology, but that's not the reason clients were dealing with you, right? They it made your it made your practice more efficient, but the over focus on it may have taken away from the humanity of it all and the servicing of it all. So, you know, if you went too far and just focusing on digitizing and optimizing your process without focusing on how you can provide deeper, greater value to a client, you didn't do yourself a service in that regard. You may have more free time to do on other other stuff, but not you're not really servicing your clients the way you should. And my friend Dennis. Mo- Mosley Williams will often say that, you know, efficiency is the enemy of experience. I'm not quite so blatantly anti-efficiency in that regard. It matters, but it only matters so much as that you reinvest that that save time into something that enhances the experience altogether. So you have you have that. In Canada, the trends are still more foundationally getting off the ground. In Europe, you look at uh, the big the big trends are still towards I would say open banking protocols. They are further ahead on a lot of that stuff from a at least from a jurisdictional basis in terms of how they've done so through by way of by way of government by way of, of law. So they're further ahead in that regard. And you know I'm seeing and around the world, especially in the developing markets, I'm seeing a lot of unique and interesting ways of trying to get more people access to financial services, which is enormously important. So we're talking about uh, alternative methodologies for how they profile risk to give people loans and create accountability in these systems and, 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 and stuff like that. So we're seeing a lot of novel ways or a lot of unique ways to try to build off of some of the stuff that came you know, four and a half years ago. Yeah, I, know, I make note of the, the fact you're saying the, the account opening process, the digitization of paperwork and such. Uh, I think you and I even listened to the same podcast even just a couple of weeks ago, how we're listening to this one RIA in the States, and they're still complaining that it took you know three days to open their accounts. You know, primarily from a regulatory standpoint, or you know, just making sure things were 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 done appropriately. But I think you know, like in Canada here, we can we can open accounts digitally within within a day or half a day, even using some of our technology. So, but some of the U.S. has that too. What I'm what I'm not talking about. Look, look, there's some there's some vendor specific things that some dealers have basically put the or some dealers from custodians or some tamps have come up with on, on their own. But is there a, a vendor that, like I said, as an RIA, I can go in, put my credit card information into, and then basically say, oh, this is my custodian and let me link up my CRM and now it works. Right, right. right. That doesn't exist. No. That doesn't exist. It is all very, it's all very specific to that that individual. And yes, I know you're at a, you're at a firm yourself where you guys have digital onboarding. I've seen it. I think there's limitations to it that some strengths and weaknesses just like there are any system, but that ability for kind of a turnkey onboarding process ain't there. No, no, agree. It's, it's not there. It's, it's getting there. But like you said at the outset, it's uh, it's in it's in process. So. So on that though, you know, what are the challenges that you're seeing? What are the what are the challenges you're seeing in the sector that perhaps are limiting the advance of some of the fintech uptakes? Couple things. I think three places I'll pick on is the all three parts of it. So first off, shortage of developers. Everyone I talk to. Uh, can't get their hands on enough talent, or maybe the talent's not talented enough. And you know, I've said it before that I think that there's there is no way that we're going to meet the demand for developers in the future. The real play is to basically eliminate the need for developers at such a high level, and that's uh, the the implementation of no and low code platforms like Bubble and some of the other ones out there where you don't necessarily need to learn how to code, write a lot of code. You can just drag and drop stuff. And as long as you can understand the logic, you're a lot closer to it. So platforms that allow people to build apps and, and solutions 
without having to get down to base code. That is, that's the long-term play. I think that that is a trend I'm starting to see now being adopted in enterprises with certain unique tools in terms of, the, you know, how do I, we have this platform now, it ties into all our data. We do this, this is our workflow for handling this in paper. How can we build that? into the digital workflow and then just kind of steward it. So I think the bigger trend is down the road is that you're going to have fewer people doing heavy lifting, hopefully, and more people basically just being curators of that entire, this is how we get from point A to point B. This is why all this data is important. So that is that is going to happen as part of a no-code revolution I slowly see happening. The second uh, impediment is just the fact that we are still dealing with systems that date back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and it drives me insane on a daily basis. If you had told someone in the 1960s that the computer, the mainframe computer they were installing would be in operation in 2020, they would have wondered what the hell went wrong along the way. And there is a principle I've learned out, something called the Lindy principle. It is basically that the longer you depend on a system the more likely you are to depend on it for a longer period of time. And that's because even though we are built off of these archaic, archaic systems, the support systems that sit on top of them with which we sit on top of that are enormous. And the problem is you can't just, that we have so much support, so much supporting it, the inefficiency of this, that to take that apart is an enormous task. It's not a matter of just taking it with, you know, swip, swapping computers. So it is, it is the one of the single biggest bottlenecks is is the inability to get to crack some of these things open, get that data out and put into something new. But I keep saying this, and yet meanwhile, they still keep on opening up accounts on 1960s technology every day. So fun. The last one, and I will say that this is dependent upon the jurisdiction. In the US, I do not see this as a problem. Our places in Europe and Australia, I've seen as a problem. In Canada, it most certainly is. And that's the, the advisor's willingness to accept accept or adopt technology the or the, the intermediary. I mean, I'm picking on advisors a lot because that's our focus. But the assumption that clients won't use something. It's astonishing. And more often than not, that assumption is rooted in the individual's general concerns or, or beliefs on technology. They never actually tested it. So end user adoption to date has not really been that big of a problem. It's more so the intermedi intermediary adoption. And, and then the other challenge and the one I'll pick on for sure is that I don't know that a lot of these institutions have people internal to them that can think at this level when it comes to how to digitally transform their businesses and nor are the incentives designed to do that. Right. And to, to your point about advisor taking up the technology, I'll tell you, you know, we started using started using DocuSign for four or five years ago now. And I'll, I'll tell you, even even some of my older clients who are reluctant to try it or use it are fan, big fans of it now. Absolutely big fans of it now. So it might take one visit with them to show to show them how to use it. To your point, yeah, clients absolutely. When they're introduced to a certain technology, they embrace it. They like it, and it well, can I mean, can. To your point earlier, it can actually help that relationship and help you help you have more meaning, meaningful uh, conversation. Well, I totally get. It. I mean, you have to you have to you have to work on that experience where no one wants a new challenge thrown at them. They they you know they're 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 not hiring us to basically make their lives difficult. They want to make it easy. So if it means sitting down with them and basically walking through them, or, you know, it's it's it, walking through it with them. That's that's what it takes. But it's you know, more often than not, we assume that we know how people are going to react to things. And the answer is no, we're looking at that through our own biases. So we just went through COVID and there seemed to be uh, during COVID a big uptake in technology. Netflix and all that were big examples where people were, were using streaming systems and that. Did you see an uptake in fintech adoption during COVID? And my, and my follow-up question to that is now that we're in this recessionary environment, seeing capital flows being reduced, are you seeing fintech companies starving for cash? So two pieces. Yeah, I mean, technological adoption went through the roof during COVID. We all, we all know that because, frankly, you had no choice. 
Uh, and I have more people inquiring about solutions in that period of time than ever, which is not surprising. So that makes perfect sense. Now, the I, I think in many cases, some of these people took a massive step back afterwards. I'm, one of my favorite examples is insurance companies in Canada who went from digital delivery back to paper delivery after a certain period of time in the middle of the pandemic. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. So it's hard to uh, teach an old dog new tricks sometimes. Now, as for what's happening going forward in terms of funding, absolutely. Look, the first off, anyone who says that venture capital or private equity markets are not correlated with the general market is full of it. We're seeing massive pullbacks in funding. I've known companies that get starved out of it and some unfortunately to shutter in the last little while because of it. And it's not a merit of their technology. It's just sometimes you get to the 11th hour and you you had a deal worked out, but now your funder can't make those capital calls and it's done. It's over. You may not have enough time. So it's it's problematic. Uh, in fact, you know, the other thing is, is that there was an entire sector of the economy that scaled enormously because of COVID, right? So I'll point to the online trading platforms like Robinhood in the US and, and uh, Well Simple in Canada, where demand for these because the usage, we're all sitting at home. People started playing in YOLOing and doing all kinds of stuff. But even, even companies like Shopify, right, where demand for their services just skyrocketed and it was not going to stay at that level. Now, as a company, when you're venture funded and you have, or you're, and, you know, on, on the publicly traded markets, you know, what do you do? Do you say no to that business and have it go somewhere else? Or do you continue to scale your business? Well, it's a, t- it's a tough choice. And they scaled their businesses and, you know, their stock prices speak to it right now. Uh, at the end of the day, that, that all dropped off. They may have capitalized for a short period of time, but they're all suffering for it now. Right. Are you... Are any of the ones uh, that you've interviewed in the last little while, do you see any major success stories in the last 250 episodes? Yeah. Well, now ask me to pick which one's done the best. I mean, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, every, I think every financial planning software I interviewed with the exception of Conquest has sold. Uh, so they've all had exits. There's been a lot of exits. So I've been happy for the people who've, uh, who've basically done that. Conquest uh, is, uh, which I am on the advisory board for now, or at least a feedback board, not quite an advisory board, is kicking butt. That was one of the more exciting things I've seen in years. So yeah, I mean, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people. Uh, you know, there's over... 250 episodes now, actually more in the can. And, you know, there's been a lot that have uh, that have just climbed the mountain and a bunch of that basically cashed out. And so it's hard to pick, but those those ones stick in my head. Uh, anyone who's exited has been, I'd say, out of the 200, let's call it, I probably, you know, not counting the, the panel discussions and everything else, probably call it 220, 230 episodes that featured a specific company. I'd say that we've probably seen at least a good 30 exits, which more, you know, hats off to those people, right? Great. I've seen, we've seen some closures, unfortunately, some things that did not take flight the way they're supposed to, unfortunately, but uh, there's been a lot of M&A activity and a lot of people benefit from it. And a lot of these companies have now become household names in, in the world and other ones who basically are basically becoming household names within the sectors that they are, that they are servicing. So I may have asked this question in a, di- in a different uh, manner a second ago, but I'm going to ask it this way uh, differently now. What are some of the biggest surprises you've seen in the last 250 episodes? Good question. Good question. Uh, so the biggest surprises, I think, you know, again, my I'll go back to saying that we're not as far along as I would have thought we would be, but that's that's fine. That's my naivety. Surprises, there were, there's only been a couple of times where, and we do this at the end of the year when we do our year in review show, where I kind of say like, here's the most impressive technology I've seen this year. There's been a couple that have almost broken my my view of how things work. So every now and then I get a paradigm changing technology that it hits, shows up. I think the Cinchi with the advent of data fabric as a solution for how you run your data systems and, and communication or sorry, or data management, that one kind of broke my brain. Like that is everything I knew about how you would basically 
control and uh, the flow of data and, and manage systems was just was just basically rewritten by watching that. I think, again, I'll go back and mention Conquest. First time I saw them in person and they basically demoed for me, my exact words were shut up and take my money. It was a solution that I contemplated. What would, what would a financial planning software that was powered by artificial intelligence and, and basically made things super easy look like? And what they showed me was better than I had imagined. So more user-friendly and approachable than I had imagined. So you have that. You have a number of other technologies, I think, that were, I'd say that those are those are the big ones. I think some of the stuff that's actually excited me more than the big kind of paradigm changing stuff, quite honestly, is some of the more basic stuff that's been, you know, like, oh, this is such a novel, simple thing that really needs to be done. Like, why isn't this being done already? And there's a lot of power to this. So some of the, you know, give me three simple examples. More recently, Hubly. So simply financial advisor checklists and, and practice management systems. Frankly, just making sure that you've you've got a, a a repeatable checklist system for how you're going to implement every any part of your process. You know, taking a sauna essentially and making it for financial advisors. I'm like, yes, this makes perfect sense. And oh, you have a library that basically has these best practices or these templates to start with. Fantastic. Something as simple as FP Pathfinders for just just flowcharts, flowcharts on how to basically make a decision and uh, on or or to basically confirm that the planning solution you're making is solid. That is foundationally fantastic. Uh, Nudge, a company that basically <laughs> literally hugged the client to death and just poked them a certain ways to, to make sure that that they are replying to something or doing something or you're basically executing the way they should. I think that, you know, some of the more, like I said, some of the more interesting, fascinating stuff that I would love has just been, oh, wow, this is such a simple implementation of this, but it's a problem that's real. I mean, just earlier before this recording, I was catching up with the founder of uh, eState Planner. It is a primarily a legal software for composing wills, but it all on the front end, it has this drag and drop interface for building an estate plan. And there hasn't been a single client I've used it with. It wasn't like at some point mid through, wow, this is, this is really cool, right? Like it made, it made the concept of estate planning and figuring out who was getting what approachable and visible. And, and like, so those, those very simple things. So you don't have to reinvent an industry or reinvent the technology or do something paradigm shifting. Those are exciting and fantastic and, and great. But some of the simpler stuff has just been fantastic because they deal with so, such straightforward problems. Fantastic. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a colleague who's actually building something very much like that in the uh, in the mortgage business, where you can yeah yeah where where the where all the all the steps and processes are automated and nudges the client uh, along the way and, and it's the reporting system is pretty impressive the uh, user interface is, is really friendly so I'm really really excited to see that thing come to come to market as well well I'm happy to chat with him when he's ready to go but I think it's funny the there was a tweet the other day I can't remember who said it where it was I think it was Stephanie Bogan um, but it was something to the effect of like getting tired of seeing these other fascinating technologies everybody wants us to look at when the fundamental problems haven't been solved. And it's like, exactly, right? Like I, you know, and I see this behavior from institutions all the time where it's like, oh, look, we just, we look, look what we gave you. We just got you access to this thing that does this wonderful stuff. It's like, that's fine. But what about the core problem you still have not solved? And, right. and too often, you know, I think the focus, a lot of institutions will often focus on, we can't fix that core problem. Let's just, let's just deal with other stuff. Right. And I think that that's, the, that's the wrong way to look at things. You, the, the, we have to focus on bigger core solutions. I mean, otherwise this is, this is why we're sitting here without a, a platform for onboarding that would work across custodians around the world. Like it's, it's look, it's data mapping, it's a workflow, it's, you know, potentially, you know, it's real time, real time account opening, but I know it's complex because there's a lot of different variables that go into it. But the fact that it hasn't been cracked, come on. So it sounds like you're going down the path there of open banking. And I didn't want to open another raw wound, but 
Uh, what are your thoughts on the advancement of open banking so far and uh, since your five-part series a year and a half ago? So my five-part series on open banking a year and a half ago, which, by the way, as I've referenced it before, is depressing enough, both on-air and off-air, the country I live in, that I want to drink afterwards. So let's talk about development. So development, I think everything's rolling along in Europe and the U.S. as it's expected. I mean, the U.S. is largely taking a kind of free market approach to it, and you're seeing that stuff get out there. Now, there's more I'd say that the good news is, is that there's some good positive changes there in that increasing requirements uh, for SEC companies to use SOC 2 compliance. So security is going to go up on some of this stuff. I think there's more scrutiny and there's been lawsuits about the use of that data when it's done and when it's used inappropriately or used, used for sources that are not really pertaining to the, the original reason it was extracted. So you have that. You have the um, the European situation where they continue to roll on through through basically regulatory engagement. So the regulatory approach first, and that continues. They're continuing to slowly build out those systems. So it's it's, it's happening. This is one of those ones where the the pot is is slowly boiling on the frog, and one day they'll get there. Meanwhile, in Canada, we released that paper on our open banking framework, and I started reading it, and I stopped reading it very quickly. And it came down to, it's very simple. The timelines set out were completely unrealistic. What have we seen? I mean, we've seen very little. We've seen very little. And I mean, you're privy to conversations that I know about where people in, internal to major financial institutions have commented about the fact that like, oh yeah, we just can't figure out how we're going to make a lot of money off of this. And it's like, no, no, no. Let's, let's go back to the fundamental flaw of the way you're looking at this. You're basically, that is my data. And now you're arguing about how you're going to basically give it to me. That is spiteful. That is spiteful and that is wrong. But you know what? They still, short of a short of an act of law that says it's not yours, it's the clients, which I mean, technically it sort of exists under Pepita in Canada. And they're gonna fight it. They're gonna fight it because it's it's a it's a, it's an advantage to the large institutions that have it. So am I confident in it? And how it's going, I think it depends on what country we're looking at. Less so for the one that we live in, though. Uh, every time. Yeah. I was gonna I was gonna bring up that conversation about uh, that conversation I had with the compliance guy who has confessed to me that, you know, they're looking at ways to monetize uh, open banking. And I was so furious. I go, that's my data. That's my information. And they're yeah. looking to sell it back to me. Anyway, so I think we both feel the same way on that. And Well, I mean, here's where the thing is going to happen is they're not going to sell it back to you. What they're going to do is they're going to try to figure out a way to monetize it through the companies they're giving it to, which is going to basically come back to you through fees in those companies. So it's right. just, it's it's ridiculous. It is astonishing to believe that the records of where I spend my money are something they think belongs to them. Bizarre and just absurd. Okay, so we're seeing some trends in the market in fintech specifically, but fintech is a broad umbrella. Are there any trends that you're seeing within fintech that are faster, you know, outpacing the others? Like, say, for example, uh, peer-to-peer lending or or anything else that you see is moving faster than other segments of, of fintech? Well, I mean, it ebbs and flows. It depends on the period we're talking about. I mean, we're definitely done with the robo-advisor growth stage. I mean, like that's kind of plateaued. So that was one example. There was we're done with the crypto hype cycle for now. It'll probably come back at some other point. We're done with the day with the day trading cycle, and I, it looks and knock on wood. Hopefully, it looks like we might be slowly losing the buy now, pay later phenomenon is slowing down. can always judge what's what's going on based on the number of emails that hits my inbox and what these people are pitching. So I've noticed a drop off in all of those. Is there anything picking up speed right now? No, I think we might be, unfortunately, as a sign of the time, I've seen some maybe what might be an early indicator, which is a debt management tool or debt options tool, for example, that will help you refinance these things, like your, your debts or or you know better monitor them. I think that may be a sign of the times where we're heading. But in general, there's there's no again these these are all fits and spurts right they all have their natural 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 growth cycle where they go really fast and then they hit a natural market market level and they they plateau if anything i think that a lot of the 
when I started this four and a half years ago, we were in, you know, fintech was still a relatively new term and we were in a big hype cycle at the time. And I was seeing solutions left, right and center and novel things and different ideas. I feel like that's slowed down. I feel like it's slowed down. There's a, there's a, we've hit a maturity plateau at this point. And that's not a bad thing, right? It's not a bad thing. These companies are maturing. They're consolidating. They're some of them shutting down. They're coming to reality on their valuations. They're being forced to develop actual viable businesses. There's still growth there. It's just not the same rate it was before. I mean, when you're starting with, you know, from the number one, going to two is a hundred percent growth rate, right? It's going to going to 10 is a thousand percent growth rate. So it's it's easier to, to have very impressive numbers in that regard. But overall, no, right now, again, maybe we're in the early stage of the debt the debt piece but like i said prior to that just just recently it was unfortunately and it really peaked during the during the online marketing online shopping piece that happened during uh, during covid which was the buy now pay laters which frankly ugh, i got all kinds of issues with that although even apple's got into that state got into that business now yeah. What was the ad again? Is that the one that that's the, that's the primary one? I, I think there's they, so many after pay and after pay. And, yeah. Like it's, it's all well, over the place. Well, after pay was an Australian firm that got acquired, right? By Stripe. And I think if Stripe. I'm correct, Stripe is now worth less than what they pay or worth about the same they paid for after pay altogether. Right. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so here we are 250 episodes in, where do you see, what sort of trends do you see in, in the space? Call it, Next 500 episodes or the next 2,500. Or so where, where are we now? 2,500 so, episodes, my God. <laughs> oh, sorry. We're at 250. Yeah, where do you see where do you see this in at at five at your five five hundred? Okay, so I'm like, where am I at episode 500? Um, I'm older. That's the only thing I can guarantee. Everything else is here is hypothesis, and frankly, they're likely to all be wrong. I mean, you always if you want to prove yourself wrong, just put it to the future. And this will this will serve as a time capsule, just how wrong I am. Okay. So where do I think we'll be in four and a half years? Still in 1960s technology, unfortunately. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waving the white flag, man. I'm waving the white flag. I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take, quite honestly. And just, just to tell you, the number of vendors that come on the podcast and talked about how their technology is going to extend the life of some of these systems, I'm saying to myself, like, stop beating a dead horse. My God, this is brutal. So you have that. Uh, where do I see us in four and a half years? I think that a lot of we have a great by then, a lot of the companies I interviewed will be approaching 10 years of life early, the ones I've interviewed early on, right? So I think that you're going to see, let's pick a, 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 sub, a sub industry, right? So look at the robos and and what they're doing. I think they're going to be much more mature financial institutions that look more similar to online financial institutions. You know, they started with investment. They're going to be basically dealing with, uh, if they're not already, they're going to be dealing with mortgages probably. They're going to be dealing with other banking sector verticals, either through acquisition or expansion, and just basically become mature online banks over time. But with a heavy customer-centric view of the universe, with, with a a model that is not perceived to be as exploitative as basically banking is. If they do start doing that, they're going to lose their soul and that's going to cost them their client base. So that's one of them. I think we're going to see, we're starting to see, and I mentioned this in the trends, I'm seeing more and more light implementations of artificial intelligence. I think we're going to see a lot more of that going forward. Absolutely. The proliferation of those tools is going to become more important because one of the other things we're seeing, because if open banking continues to slowly take hold, is what we'll call a fractionalization or, or not say, a, a, a fracturing of, of financial services. What, what I mean by that is look at how many institutions now provide some form of financial service um, so servicing. So buy now, pay is a perfect example. I, I spoke at a conference recently. I went to, uh, I think it was the Lush website. So this is a, you know, these guys, this is a company uh, in Canada that basically makes things like bath bombs and other skincare products and whatever. 
And I just wanted to, because I did this over Christmas and was shocked by it. I put one $5 bath bomb in the cart and I was given the option to pay for it in five easy payments. <laughs> right. So the reality is even a company like Lush is becoming, is, is offering financialization through, through a third party vendor. Sure. So the reality is, is that we are going to see more and more businesses look at, okay, we have their trust. You know, how do we provide solutions around money? or something similar to it. I think it was last week, uh, Amazon announced in the UK that they're getting into the PNC business. So that's that's a big, big threat to a lot of companies. Uh, you, you see the Starbucks is arguably the most, uh, is the largest unregulated bank in the in the world. They, you know, the amount of money they hold onto for third parties is enormous to the point where there's spillage amounts in the, I think, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions a year that they get to keep. Start thinking about what would happen if these institutions, instead of basically just holding on your money, started rewarding you. Now, that maybe they can't legally pay interest because they're not banks, but what if instead I, I got free stars for keeping money on deposit with Starbucks? What if that sort of model was followed by any number of institutions that have loyalty cards where, oh, you're you're retaining this, this deferred amount of money on our systems? Well, we're going to... In- continue to endorse and continue to encourage you to leave it here because we'll reward you. And that'll hopefully lead to more deferred uh, funds leaving left here. So I really see a world where money is going to be, or decisions with money are going to be minute and everywhere. The challenge is, is that this is a cognitive burden on humanity. We don't want to deal with a million and one small decisions around financing. I don't want to go buy a sandwich and be at, and have to decide if I'm going to pay for it over five easy installments. But this is where artificial intelligence can come in, where I might have my money. If you picture an AI solution built into your Apple device or whatever it might be that basically act builds off what Apple's done so far, but utilizes an open platform for third-party banking. So for example, I've got $10,000 on deposit in case of emergencies in my bank account. I'm earning whatever percentage on it. Oh, look, that other bank over there just opened up and they're paying a quarter percent higher. Oh, it's too much more. It's too much trouble for me to move for that small amount of money. Why, why would I do this? It's too much work. What if the artificial intelligence was able to ping that API, open the account and transfer the money automatically? Do I really care you know, do I really care what financial institution I'm dealing with as long as I'm seeing it all in one place? So that's that's the power is that I, that's what I think is now that's that's a lot. I think it's large, longer than four and a half years out. But this entire open banking fraction, uh, like fragmenting of finance and innovation that's happening everywhere is going to create an increased cognitive burden. And that's going to basically and, and everybody's going to want to get into it because there's some sort of skim to be made there. Now, the solution to that is it all has to be centralized afterwards. And, you know, I think that your your mobile device is your personal device for doing that. And you're already seeing Apple specifically get into slowly becoming a financial institution. I mean, you look at it, you know, they started off with, you know, just basically put your credit cards in here. Then it was, by the way, you can leave my cash on this card for deposit. Oh, by the way, we now have a credit card. By the way, now we also have buy now, pay now, pay later financing. They just keep on slowly encroaching into that realm. So the world is is, is highly fragmented yet concentrated and optimized around you. And that's going to be optimized around, when I say optimized around you, if my spending pattern is that I go to Starbucks once a day, and just basically using Starbucks as an example, we always pick on it in finance because of the latte factor. And I am better off leaving money on deposit at Starbucks because of the amount of stars I get, which then technically is going to, which is technically going to save me more than the interest I would get at the bank. Why wouldn't I hold it there? So I'm glad you went there because that's exactly what I was hoping you were going to say in terms of where where we would be 500 episodes from or 250 episodes from now. In, in the sense that the bigger companies, the Amazons, the Apples, uh, and, and I wasn't thinking Starbucks, but you're absolutely right with the, with the deposits they have. I was like exactly wondering if that's where you see the future, given where, like I said, the buy now, pay later, the, the entrenchment of credit cards or deposits. Uh, we even talked about Google before, just you know, be, 
because they they know so much about us already. They could easily enter the space and and start offering uh, financial services and uh, and 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 there's some well, that that say that the banks, the incumbents, are actually at a huge well, they're they're right for the picking. Uh, these guys. Well, here's, one for you. here's one for you. You know, I mentioned Dennis previously, and I was visiting with them up in Ottawa a couple of weeks ago. And his entire thesis is that, as far as he's concerned, he must be, you know, the, these financial, these tech companies are probably just doing the government a favor by not getting involved and the institutions a favor by not getting involved. Because imagine Google basically giving you every financial service for free and monetizing out the data. Yeah, that should amazing. scare the living crap out of every executive in every sector of finance today. That's the reality of it. Now, do I believe that uh, antitrust <laughs> regulation will come into play before then? Probably. Do I think that these constitutions want to be bogged down by something as uh, arcane as banking regulation? Probably not. They do not want to do that. But nevertheless, with the right partners, it becomes possible. I mean, Apple's partner in this, and a lot of this stuff has been Goldman Sachs through Marcus, their online bank. So, you know, they're, they may be the front end, but they're not dealing with the heavy lifting and the adjudication and all this other stuff. That's that's someone else. So there's a lot to be worried about in regards to that in, in, this, in this world. Now, I don't, do I think that's going to happen? No, because no one, you know, that's, I think we're, I think if, if, if Google and Apple and, and, uh, and Microsoft and Amazon all became financial institutions and started hamming all this stuff out for free, then uh, we've slowly started and the end state of a of a corporate of a corporate end game that is not going to look pretty and it's going to be written about by science fiction authors but no it's an incredible opportunity and potential for someone to get this right yeah that, that part of it actually scares me i'm glad uh glad you raised the regulatory aspect of it because um yeah just the the fact that the big guys entering the space and uh doing what they can with their data that'd be a scary scary environment so coming to the end of the the chat today where we've talked about what the last 250 episodes has meant for you but how has it affected your business so it's interesting so people are like oh how much money are you making off this and the answer is indirectly lots of stuff. I mean, well, I mean, it's, it's indirectly monetizing in a lot of ways, right? So I've got two podcasts now. I also started one called Financial Plan for Canadian Business Owners. Combined, when you add the two together, I've done almost 350 podcast episodes. So it's starting to get get up there. The um, So in terms of the fintech impact, how has this changed me? So A, it's paid for itself in free software alone for me to trial and give feedback to, to various people. So that's that's been valuable. B, it's been a wonderful tool for building a larger community of, of advisors around the country. So I've gotten to meet a lot of people who know me now just because of that become a resource to them. It's also become, uh, it's led to a couple of leads, yes, but it's also become a validator for any client who works in technology who's looking for an advisor. I can speak a language they understand. And lastly, I think uh, most importantly, when it comes to all of this is, well, not most important. So, and lastly, I've also benefited from the fact that I've been asked to join advisory boards, uh, committees, and basically, you know, I, I advise several uh, fintech startups now, some a little more mature than others, some of them very early stage. So it's been one of them's exited. So it's been, you look at that one exit alone and it paid for the cost of operations and all the out-of-pocket costs from day one. So it's been, uh, it's been fun. And it's also, I mean, it's also helped build my network immensely. I mean, there's almost no one in the, no, no, I'm not to say almost no one. I know people at almost every major player out there now. So I can very easily pick up a phone, send an email and uh, pick their brains or get a, get a response. And from the other side of your podcast, as a listener, I'll tell you that I've learned a lot myself. You know, I've learned a lot about different providers of different softwares that I had never heard of before. Like you mentioned Cinchi earlier on. I was blown away by their technology as well. But then again, some of the technologies that you've introduced, I'm in awe. I'm in awe at how many different products and companies and strategies are out there. And I'm just amazed at how how much, you know, what the future holds ultimately. So I, I just wanted to give you a congratulations from me. Hopefully I'm speaking for other Canadian financial advisors that you're providing a great service to us because you're 
you're that one resource we can turn to to find out about technology in the space. And and yeah, you are you are that uh, that beacon of light in the community, <laughs> the Canadian yeah. space. Thank you, sir. Really appreciate it. Not just in Canada, but there's half my listenerships in the U.S. And I thank you for that. Yeah, you're worldwide. So even though we're we're Canadian based, uh, your your re- listenership is worldwide. It is. Anyway, Guy, thank you so much for taking the time for this stroll down memory lane and um, talking about the future. I sincerely appreciate it. It's always fun. And I always look forward to the notifications when your new podcast release. So thanks. And keep up, the, keep up the good work and we'll look forward to the next 250. Excellent. That was today's episode, number 250. Um, we'll see how much longer I keep this going. <laughs> it, can be a, it can be quite the labor, but uh, nevertheless, it keeps me constantly engaged, and I hope you've enjoyed the journey. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.